Okay, uh, good evening. My name is John Sedell, and I'd like to welcome you here to the LSE on behalf of the LSE Middle East Center. And uh, on behalf of the Middle East Center, I should add that there will be a sheet being passed around among you uh, to ask if you'd like to be added to our mailing list. So please sign up if you'd like to have information about further events. Um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our speaker and discussant this evening. We're very lucky to have here back at the LSE, Stéphane Lacroix from Sciences Po, where he teaches political science. Um, here to give a lecture that also celebrates and helps to launch his new book. It's not new in French, or it was published what, a few years ago a year. uh, in French. A year, um, ago. a year ago. But now, care of Harvard University Press, Awakening Islam, the Politics of Religious Dissent in Contemporary Saudi Arabia, handsomely reproduced and available for purchase afterwards. Uh, we're not here to sell books, but uh, it's a nice fringe benefit for the occasion. Um, so we're very grateful to have him here speaking to us about the politics of religious dissent in contemporary Saudi Arabia. We're also lucky to have here with us, not just tonight, but I'm lucky I'm across the hall from him uh, in terms of my office, to have here at the LSE more generally, uh, Stefan Hertog, a former colleague of Stefan's from Sciences Po, uh, <coughs> who teaches comparative politics uh, here in the government department at the LSE and is one of our budding new very accomplished scholars of the Middle East we have here, not just as a visitor, but permanently, we hope. We can never leave. Um, and who also has a recently published book on Saudi Arabia and thus is in a perfect position to uh, be a discussant uh, for Stefan's presentation this evening and to discuss his book. And uh, Stefan's book is Princes, Brokers, and Bureaucrats, Oil in the State in Saudi Arabia, More on the Political Economy uh, of the Kingdom. So the proceedings this evening will be as follows. Stefan will uh, deliver a scintillating lecture for 30, 35, maybe 40 minutes. Uh, and then Stefan uh, will sort of, uh, sort of lightly saute him and serve you up uh, Stefan in perfect uh, condition to be grilled by the audience uh, thereafter <laughs> to perfection. Uh, and we will wrap up by 7.30, hopefully with a lively discussion ensuing from uh, some interesting presentations. So without further ado, please welcome uh, Stéphane Lacroix. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks to the Millie Center, thanks to Joan uh, Seidel personally for uh, organizing this. Okay. Thanks to Stefan for accepting to discuss it. Um, so uh, 10 days or two weeks ago, uh, an eminent product of Saudi Islamism made the headlines, uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, of course, he had turned global since the mid-90s, and Saudi Arabia was just one of his many targets. And yet, his primary Islamist socialization, uh, if I may say, uh, was firmly rooted in the Saudi Islamist field. As a teenager and as a young adult, uh, he had, like so many in his generation, been part of what is referred to in Saudi Arabia as the Sahwa, Sahwa al-Islamiyya, the Islamic awakening. Later, uh, after the Sahwa spearheaded the most significant episode of uh, Islamist protest in Saudi Arabia's history that was in the early 90s, bin Laden would constantly claim the Sahwa's legacy, arguing that the Sahwa's failure to reform the Saudi monarchy by peaceful means was the reason why he had decided to embrace violence. Um, for anyone studying the uh, domestic politics of Saudi Arabia, the Sahwa is one of the most important actors to observe. Uh, it is by far 
the largest and better organized Islamist group in the kingdom, with arguably hundreds of thousands of members. But it is not just that. It is the largest and better organized non-state group in the kingdom. And uh, that would be far ahead of the tribe, for instance, which uh, if they do maintain certain and probably great uh, culture and social relevance, uh, have lost much, much of their political relevance. So when it comes to mobilizing power, the Sahwa has uh, something that no one else has in the, in the kingdom, so it makes it unique. Uh, so, so the book I'm presenting here uh, uh, contains a lot of information about the history and the development of the Sahwa, and uh, this information I, I gathered through uh, years of fieldwork in Saudi Arabia. I had a chance to meet uh, many of the Sahwa's members and former members. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I would not be able to go through all this uh, incredible history here with you, um, but it's in the book. Uh, but take a lot of time. But uh, I will focus on some of the key features of the Sahwa which I think explain its nature and politics. And, and again, this is what I want to present here to you. Uh, so, so the first thing uh, I would like to stress uh, is that the Sahwa was initially what I have called an imported Islamism. Uh, the history of the Sahwa starts uh, in the 50s and the 60s with the coming to the kingdom of thousands of Muslim Brotherhood militants who are coming from uh, uh, you know, the Arab progressive states, as they called them at the time, uh, Egypt mainly after Nasser's revolution, but also Syria and later Iraq after the Ba'ath takes over. And, uh, and as those uh, Muslim Brotherhood militants come to the Saudi Kingdom, uh, they are largely co-opted by the Saudi states, which turns them into uh, a, a, what you could call a bureaucratic and intellectual elite. Uh, and uh, they are put in charge of some, in, uh, some of the main sectors of the state, uh, which includes uh, the education system. And uh, in the education system, they play a very prominent role. Uh, they draft the curricula. They become the university's new deans. Uh, they teach all disciplines uh, from religious disciplines to non-religious disciplines. Uh, so, of course, you would find them in, in engineering and, and in medicine. And we know that the Islamists are usually very good at those. But you also find them in religious studies. And what is interesting is that you would find them teaching fiqh, you would find them teaching tafsir, you would find them teaching hadith. There would be one exception, and we'll come back to that exception, uh, which is the creeds in Arabic aqidah, right? The Wahhabis consider the creed to be their domain and something that they do not share with anyone. So generally, in, in, in religious faculties of Saudi Arabia, you would have departments of fiqh and tafsir, etc., controlled by the brothers, and the Wahhabis uh, keeping the creed as a stronghold. So this means that the, the, the extent of the influence of the Brotherhood in the education system was huge. Uh, could name, of course, some of the, uh, the, the, the figures of that immigration uh, uh, of the brothers to Saudi Arabia. Uh, some of you who know the Brotherhood would, 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 would know these names. One of the, one of the, the, the famous, of course, uh, individuals uh, uh, who participated in that movement is Mohammed Qutb, who's the brother of Sayyid. Uh, Mohammed and Sayyid were jailed together in Egypt in 1965. Uh, and when uh, Sadat uh, came to power, he freed the Islamists who had been jailed by Nasser. And uh, Muhammad Qutb was freed in 1971. He, was, uh, then, uh, he, he then left to uh, Saudi Arabia and he became a professor at Umar Qura University. And, uh, and he uh, taught there for more than 30 years. Um, he would have tremendous influence in Saudi Arabia. Uh, other names, uh, Muhammad al-Ghazali from Egypt as well, spent quite a bit of time. Uh, Said Sabak, in the early days, Said Sabak is considered the, uh, the, the most uh, important reference in Islamic jurisprudence for the Brotherhood, when he has this book called Fiqh al-Sunnah, the Brotherhood continued to use until today. 
Uh, those are for the Egyptians. If we look at the Syrians, we also have very big names. Uh, Said Hawa, for instance, was uh, teaching in Saudi Arabia for a while. He would become the ideologue of the uh, Brotherhood Uprising in, 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 in Syria in the late 70s. Uh, um, Abdel Fattah Abu as well, who's one of the big names of the Brotherhood in Syria. Uh, and uh, someone who was not very well known when he was in Syria, but would become extremely well known in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he's called Mohammed Surur Zain al Abidin. Uh, Mohammed Surur Zain al Abidin left Syria in the mid 60s. Again, he was a mid ranking figure of the brothers. He spent 10 years teaching in Saudi Arabia, and uh, he would be one of you know, the big players in this uh, uh, you know, incipient Sahwa movement, and we'll, we'll have a chance to come back to him later on. Um, so the, the, the presence of the, the Brotherhood at the core of the Saudi system led to what I consider to be uh, a major development in contemporary Islamic thought, uh, which is the encounter and later the hybridation between the two major forms of Islamic fundamentalism that have existed since the 18th century. Those are on the one hand Wahhabism and on the other hand the Muslim Brotherhood's ideology as a matrix for what is known today as Islamism. Right? So Islamism and Wahhabism uh, 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 met and blended, one could say, within uh, this context. So to understand the significance of this encounter and hybridation, I would like to say a word about each of those two fundamentalisms to, so that we distinguish them very clearly. Uh, so as far as Wahhabism is concerned, the focus is on the purification of the Muslim creed, the aqidah, which I mentioned earlier. And, and for Abdul Wahhab, who's the founder of Wahhabism, he's a preacher who lives in the 18th century, uh, the, the, uh, the, the essence of the creed of Aqidah has to be Tawheed, the unity or the unicity or the oneness or the transcendence of God, right? you can translate it in many ways. But what distinguishes Abdul Wahhab there is that for him, Tawheed is not just the belief that there's only one God, that Muhammad is his prophet, right? as, as the, the Shahada goes. For him, uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, practice Tawheed, you have to worship only one God. And so you have to practice Tawheed in your worship, which means that you have to exclude to all intermediaries or associates to God in the act of worshipping. And uh, for this, uh, this for, for Abdul Wahab would exclude from uh, the uh, Muslim religion uh, many of the forms of Islam that existed at his time and that ex exist until today. Uh, he would exclude the Sufis, for instance, because he would say the Sufis worship their saints. That's, that's a contradiction to Tawheed. He would exclude the Shiris, uh, because he would say that the Shiris worship their Imams. And again, this is an association to God, so this excludes them from Islam. So the, the, the message of Abdul Wahhab is essentially centered around this idea of Islamic religious orthodoxy. And this Islamic religious orthodoxy is achieved through uh, fighting against non-Wahhabi currents within Islam. Uh, so, uh, so, so it's really this focus. And when we look at the political dimension of Abdul Wahhab's thinking, it's really minimal. Uh, what he believes is that in order to apply and enforce his religious reform, he needs a political arm. And this is why he allies himself with a prince, uh, Mohammed bin Saud, which leads to the establishment of the first Saudi state in 1744. Uh, th this explains why in, in Saudi Arabia, as we know it today, uh, the deal between the princes and the, and the ulama, or the, or the religious scholars, is the following, it goes as, as, as the following. As long as the princes enforce Islamic orthodoxy in society, and as long as they strive to spread Islamic orthodoxy outside the kingdom, then the ulama are ready to leave the princes a lot of autonomy in running the country without interfering with their political decisions. 
And this explains why uh, the Wahhabi ulama, for instance, have been ready to accept such controversial decisions as uh, the alliance with Western powers, and especially the alliance with the United States in 1945 after the uh, USS Quincy agreement between uh, uh, President Roosevelt and King Abdelaziz, right? This was accepted because this was considered that this was the prerogative of the princes. And as long as the, 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 the princes did the part of the deal, the ulama would let them run uh, uh, politics, and especially foreign policy. Um, so the, the, the conception of the Islamic State that we see here in Wahhabism is very different from the one that is upheld by the other major school of Islamic fundamentalism, which is that of the Muslim Brotherhood. For the Brotherhood, uh, the Islamic State, and, and we know that the Islamic State is the core of the message of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, for them, it's a state that is based on Sharia alone. That's, that's the way they define it, right? Sharia and nothing else. And this means that it is a state where the rulers would have very little political autonomy because religion would provide all the legal answers. And uh, this is especially true of the more radical members of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the disciples of Sayyid Qutb, uh, who are referred to as the Qutbis, who have a much more utopian idea of what the Islamic State should be. Uh, and it's based on Qutb's concept of Hakimiyah, right? The sovereignty of God in political affairs. Uh, and uh, it happened that in Saudi Arabia, most of the brothers who came were Qutbis. They were disciples of Qutb. Uh, because uh, in the 60s and 70s, this was the dominant uh, group among the Muslim Brotherhood. And so, because it was the moment when the immigration took place, those are the ones who left to Saudi Arabia in, in biggest numbers. Uh, at the same time, while we're comparing uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and Wahhabism, uh, one should add that the brothers have always had very little interest in promoting uh, Islamic religious orthodoxy. Uh, the brothers have always said that they were ready to work uh, with other Muslims as long as they share a common political goal. So other Muslims mean Sufis and Shiris, for instance, right? We know that when the uh, uh, Islamic revolution took place in Iran, uh, the brothers first applauded. They were happy. And then, you know, they changed the position in the 80s for political reasons. But the first reaction was very positive. Um, so... In a sense, to sum it up, we could say that Wahhabism is fundamentally a movement of religious reform, while the Brotherhood is fundamentally a movement of political reform. And this is what, in a sense, would make them very easy to combine, because they talk about different things. Uh, so the, the, the encounter and hybridation uh, between uh, Wahhabism and the Muslim Brotherhood ideology took place through this education system that, as I said, was shared between the Muslim brothers and, and the Wahhabis. The Wahhabis, as I said, kept the creed for them, and the brothers did everything else. Uh, and uh, this uh, encounter and hybridation within the education system led to the emergence and the rise of a new ideology uh, and a new movement, which is what is referred to in Saudi Arabia as the Sahwa, Sahwa al-Islamiyah, the Islamic awakening. Uh, by the way, that's the reason for the title of the book, right? It's called Awakening Islam. It's a reference to the Sahwa. Uh, so, in a nutshell, the, 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 the Sahwa subscribes to the Wahhabi conception when it comes to religion, and, it's, or, and it comes especially to creed. And it subscribes to the Muslim Brotherhood's conceptions, and especially the Qutbi conceptions, when it comes to politics. Um, because the... Uh, education system was put to a very large extent at the service of this ideological project. Uh, it served as a vehicle for the spread of the Sahwa's ideas. Uh, 
Muslim Brotherhood and Wahhabi authors were taught to students, right? If you talk with Saudis who've studied in, uh, I mean, until not very long ago, they would tell you that they, they've read Said Qutub, they've read Abdul Wahab, they've read all these books at school, right? They were, they were part of the curriculum. And students were also encouraged to take part in extracurricular activities, such as the summer camps, al marakaz al-Saifiyya, or the comedies for raising Islamic consciousness, Hayat uh, al-Tu'iyya al-Islamiyya. And in those extracurricular, extracurricular activities, uh, students would get a chance to receive more activist teachings uh, that would complement the more theoretical teachings that they would get at school. So this means that by the 1980s, the, Sahwa, the, the, sorry, the Saudi education system would have produced an entire generation of Saudis who were trained and socialized within the ideology of the Sahwa. This generation is generally referred to in, in, in Saudi circles, in especially summer circles, as Jil Sahwa, the Sahwa generation. Uh, of course, I'm not saying that everyone in, in that generation is an Islamist activist, right? You, have, you would have different ways. You know, you, some people would just be you know, globally influenced by some of the ideas and some of the things they would have heard. Others would adhere to the system in a much more systematic way. And finally, you would have others who would become part of much more organized, semi-clandestine uh, networks. And in these organized semi-clandestine networks, you'd have, you know, uh, a hierarchy. You'd have leaders. You'd have distinct practices. You know, people would meet regularly. They would have really, there would be really be a structure with, with, with the Majlis Shura leaders, right? Uh, these these uh, semi-organized, this sorry, semi-clandestine organized networks are generally referred to in Saudi Arabia as Jamaat Islamiyah, the Islamic groups, um, and uh, two of these Jamaat Islamiyah are particularly well known because they are the most uh, powerful ones. Uh, the first is known as As-Sururi, uh, the Sururis, as sururiyun right? Uh, because uh, Muhammad Zain al-Abidin, the Muslim Brotherhood figure I mentioned earlier from Syria, is said to have had the greatest influence on this network, right? They, so generally referred to as As-Sururiyun, right? And uh, the other network uh, is generally referred to as Al-Ikhwan, the Brotherhood. Uh, which is confusing because this is a Saudi phenomenon. They're not a Saudi branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. They are identified in the Saudi context as Al-Ikhwan. They're not the Ikhwan of the 1920s, for those who know Saudi history, right? They, they, too, they're a completely different group. They, they're known as Al-Ikhwan as a reference to the Muslim Brotherhood, but which doesn't mean that they are a section of the Muslim Brotherhood. Although, of course, some of their members have you know, personal connections with Brotherhood outside Saudi Arabia. Um, but again, it's, it's, you know, for what I've seen until now, and I've, this is a very debated issue, by the way, in Saudi Arabia, whether they are a section. What I understand is that they are not. But again, at a personal scale, uh, they, uh, they, um, they do have connections. Uh, what, for instance, one of, one of the figures of the group, right, is generally known to be a figure of that group, is, is a sheikh called Awad al-Garni. Right? Awad al-Garni was accused in 2009 of, by the Egyptian intelligence of being a member of the international organization of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Tanzim al-Duwali, right? Of course, he denied the charge. He said they had nothing to do with this. Uh, and it's not, I mean, no one knows if the charge is very credible or if the, the, you know, the Saudi intelligence is just trying to, you know, to, to uh, undermine the, the, the Egyptian Brotherhood by associating them with the Saudis. But, you know, uh, he is known as an Ikhwan figure in Saudi Arabia. But again, whether he is connected to the international organization or not is something I, uh, I wonder. And I, I don't think he is personally. I, I, I would be surprised. But he has certainly personal connections with them. That, that I'm, I'm, I'm sure of. So, um, so you have those two networks, right? Sururiya or Ikhwan. Um, the, the, the relationship 
between the Sahwa and the Saudi state has always been uh, very ambiguous. Uh, on the one hand, as we see it from what I'm saying, uh, th there's something clearly subversive in the Sahwa's rhetoric. Um, we saw that they adhere to the political conceptions of Sayyid Qutb, and that would make them fundamentally critical of the Saudi states uh, and some of the political decisions that are made by the Saudi states, because they would consider those political decisions as violations of the Sharia. So there's something clearly subversive in the Sahwa. At the same time, though, when you speak with Sahwa members, they would sometimes speak out against the monarchy in, in private, and they would criticize the, the, the system in private. Uh, their leaders have traditionally publicly stressed that uh, the Saudi state was an Islamic state, and that they had to be loyal to it, and that it had to be supported. So the, that public uh, position is slightly different from what the rhetoric would let you imagine. Uh, and uh, I believe that this position is, is obviously linked to uh, the organic relationship that the Sahwa maintains with the Saudi state. Uh, many of its leaders work for the Saudi state. They recruit their members through the, through the institutions of the Saudi state. And they benefit from considerable resources uh, and benefits from the Saudi state and from its institutions. Uh, and, and I think this makes the Sahwa unique in the sphere of Islamist movements. Uh, and it's, it's a very special case. Uh, because whereas uh, Islamism everywhere has emerged and developed on the margins of the state and against the state, in the Saudi case, Islamism developed and spread out of state institutions. So it's, it's a very unique case. Uh, this is what I, I call the Sahwa in the book, I, I, I call it a state Islamism. Uh, but this, this organic relationship, this position of the Sahwa uh, and its relation with the state has put considerable constraints on the degree of activism that the Sahwa has been able to exercise against the state. And the main test uh, happened in the early 1990s uh, at a moment that is known in, in Sahwa parlance as Intifada al Sahwa, the insurrection of the Sahwa. Uh, it, it was the only moment in the last 50 years, it was the only episode in the last 50 years, when the Sahwa turned against the state. So it's, it's, it's worth studying to understand you know, what could push them to do so. And if we look at the, 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 um, the reasons for, for that uh, Sahwa insurrection, uh, there are many. I would name here two in order to, to be brief. Um, the first is uh, the uh, relative frustration of Sahwa use after the prices of oil go came down in the mid-80s. And this was right the moment when the Sahwa generation was uh, becoming adults, right? They were looking for jobs. And this was right the moment when there had never been so few opportunities to get jobs because, again, prices of oil had gone down. And this happened especially 10 years after they had gone up very much because this was the, the old boom of the 70s. So you have a generation of, of people who are socialized in Islamist ideas, who uh, have grown up at the time of abundance, who you know, have very high expectations because they've seen a society of abundance. And suddenly, at the moment when it's their turn, well, they don't get what their brothers or fathers used to get. So there's certainly some you know, kind of you know, domestic factor involved. There's, of course, an external factor, and that's, that's, that's very well known. Um, in, uh, on, in August 1990, uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And this uh, uh, convinced King Fahad of Saudi Arabia to call on foreign troops to come to Saudi Arabia uh, to protect Saudi Arabia from what he believed could be an Iraqi invasion of Saudi Arabia. He, Saudi king and princes sincerely believed that Saddam would invade Iraq after Kuwait. 
And so they made this difficult decision of bringing Western troops, and especially American troops, to the kingdom. Um, and, and that was an implementation of the 1945 agreement, right, which, I, which I mentioned earlier, this, this special relationship with the US and Saudi Arabia. <coughs> uh, th this question of a, an alliance between uh, Saudi Arabia and the US had always been a bone of contention between traditional Wahhabis and between the Sahwa. Uh, as we saw, traditional Wahhabi sheikhs considered that this was the domain of the princes and that if the princes considered it to be necessary for the, the good of the kingdom, right, for the maslaha of the kingdom, then the princes are the ones who know what the good of the kingdom is. right? It, uh, if you ask sheikhs in Saudi Arabia, Wahhabi sheikhs, they would always tell you, the princes know better what the common good is. So if they took this decision, we should follow them. And so the Wahhabi sheikhs supported the decision because again, they felt that you know, this was for the good of the country and this was a decision that belonged to the princes. The Sahwa leaders uh, were, uh, uh, took a completely different position because they refused this decision because they saw that this was a clear violation of Sharia, of Sharia principles. And uh, this American presence in Saudi Arabia turned into a, a major issue of dispute. And this is, when the moment, this is the moment when the Sahwis transformed into an open, open opposition to the Saudi state. Uh, and, and at the time, so we, we right in 1990, 1991, uh, the Sahwa used its networks to mobilize tens of thousands of young people who attended fiery sermons, who distributed position pamphlets, and even who demonstrated uh, on a few occasions. That was completely unprecedented. Uh, uh, well, when it comes to the Islamists, you could say that the leftists had demonstrated in the 50s in, in the Eastern province, but when it came to the Islamists, it was completely new, right? Uh, um, so the, the, the episode of the confrontation between uh, the, the state and the Sahwa lasted for four years. But it was eventually, the Sahwa was, uh, the opposition was eventually crushed by the regime, and uh, many of the protest leaders were jailed. Uh, it, it's, it's particularly interesting to look at the reasons why, in the end, this protest failed. Uh, and my sense is that when, and this is what I've, I've found when doing interviews on the ground, is that uh, in 1993, at the moment when the state started to repress the opposition, what happened is that uh, many of the Sahwa's mid-ranking members and figures started to fear the loss of the very favorable position that the Sahwa had always occupied in the system. And so when the state started you know, showing that it was ready to repress the demonstrations and it was ready to repress the movement, what happened is that the Sahwa itself decided to back down when it understood that what it had to lose was much more than what it had to win. So, uh, and, and it went very far from 1993, you know, the, 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 when I talk to the figures in the Sahwa networks, they would tell you that, you know, they had the orders of prohibiting their members from participating in opposition events, right? If they, would, they couldn't participate in opposition events, they wouldn't be allowed to attend opposition sermons, right? So, in the end, the decision comes, came from the networks themselves because they were not ready to pay the price of full opposition. Uh, and this isolated the leaders of the protest from their base. And eventually the leaders of the protest were jailed. And there, was very few, there were very few people to defend them at the time. The leaders of the protest are uh, individuals who are well known to those who study Saudi Arabia. Uh, Salman al-Auda, uh, Nasser al-Omar, Safar Hawali. And they went to prison and they spent five years in prison. So uh, m my point here is that this incestuous relationship between the Sahwa and the Saudi state represented a considerable obstacle to the transformation of the Sahwa into a real opposition movement. 
And, and I think we can even go further than that. Right? We, one could make the following statement. I think that in the end, you know, uh, I mean, all of these networks and all of these structures that exist on the ground, right? This is, uh, uh, they're semi-clandestine. You're not supposed to talk about it. It's a taboo in Saudi Arabia. At the same time, if I can know that they exist, Prince Naif knows that they exist, right? So what, why would Prince Naif let them exist? He could dismantle them if he wanted. I think that the state actually believes that it uh, benefits from their existence because it's a, it's, it's a tremendously effective way of controlling the, 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 the Saudi youth and especially the Islamic Saudi youth. So, uh, so my sense again is that you know, the Sahwa are, you know, is made up of what uh, sociologist Guylain Deneux calls double-edged networks, right? You know, the, and in many cases, these double-edged networks actually serve the state as a way of controlling the Islamic youth. And there's only one exception, which is the early 90s, when you know, these networks could have become the infrastructure of an opposition. But again, the leaders were not ready to pay the price because they benefit too much from the system. Um, so uh, since the mid-1990s, since the end of this insurrection of the Sahwa, uh, the largest part of the Sahwa has officially abandoned all opposition. And it returned to the former ambiguous position that it had uh, maintained with the Saudi state and this former ambiguous relationship that I, that I mentioned, right? Uh, there have been very few exceptions to that rule. Most of the Sahwa returned to the status quo. Uh, the few exceptions were uh, those in the Sahwa who decided to join uh, Osama bin Laden and his calls for global jihad. And again, they were a minority. And, uh, and, and, and uh, despite the fact that Osama bin Laden would claim the legacy of the Sahwa, but he actually had very little support from the Sahwa. And, and he would be probably very disappointed that you know, people like Salman al-Urda and others decided not to support him, right? And, and if you look at what the Sahwa leaders did in, in 2001, they all condemned 9-11, for instance. And Osama bin Laden, again, who saw himself as a continuator of the Sahwa. And, the fact that he found very little support on the Sahwa made him feel betrayed. And you have, again, if you look on the internet, you have a lot of uh, um, uh, pole uh, you know, po polemics between Sahwa and global jihadis, right? And, and, and you have a lot of attacks of global jihadis on the Sahwis, which you know, they considered uh, of having betrayed them. So, um, and and so, so that's one of the groups who didn't uh, you know, return to the statu quo and they joined Osama bin Laden in, in the course of global jihad. There are a few other members of the Sahwa of the early 90s of the protest who uh, decided to join the calls for the constitutional monarchy. That was the, another group that emerged out of the Sahwa. Of course, it was a very different political option than the global jihadi one. And those people started to, uh, to demand the establishment of a constitutional monarchy in Saudi Arabia. And they created a, a, a movement of you know, what they call uh, civil jihad, right, which is which basically peaceful opposition, but they call it jihad medani, uh, uh, by you know writing petitions and you know demanding constitutional monarchy and aligning themselves with other political groups in Saudi Arabia, uh, including liberals and including Shiites, which was something very unprecedented and in clear contrast with the sectarian rhetoric that the Sahwa usually had demonstrated. So these people were also from the Sahwa, but they moved, you know, on the far left. You could say of the Sahwa, while the global jihadis moved on the far right. But again, the, you know, the, the, the main elements of the Sahwa kept in the center and maintained a static opposition. Uh, and this was the case of Salman al-Awda, Nasr al-Omar, and Safar al-Hawali, right? all these sheikhs who had been the leaders of the early 90s protests. Uh, this doesn't mean, this return to the status quo doesn't mean that the Sahwa's power has diminished. Uh, and, uh, and until today, the Sahwa remains extremely powerful And when it comes to mobilizing people. Uh, there was one event that was particularly interesting for observers because it was a rare occasion to measure 
you know, each group's mobilizing power and potential. Those were the 2005 municipal elections. Uh, these municipal elections were, you know, the stakes were not high at all. Nobody really knew what they were for. And even, you know, people who were elected would tell you that they have done very little in, in the last six years. But what was interesting is that for the first time, people would vote. And for the first time, you would have candidates trying to mobilize supporters. It was interesting to see who would mobilize supporters. And the Sahwa decided to participate in these elections. Uh, actually, the two networks that I mentioned participated separately. And actually, they participated in competition with each other. So the Ikhwan and the Sururis participated. Uh, again, they didn't say so, right? That you, no one would have a poster that says, you know, I'm the Sururi candidate, I'm the Ikhwan candidate. But again, all, everyone in the religious sphere in Saudi Arabia would know who is who. And, and this was very obvious when talking to, to people on the ground. And, uh, and, and, and the results were, were, were you know, uh, uh, I mean, very interesting. Uh, all of these candidates were elected in the cities, right? So uh, there was always uh, a Sururi or an Ikhwani elected. And, uh, and generally, you know, the two of them would get the higher percentage of votes. Uh, in Riyadh, in Dammam, for instance, if you, if you add the votes of the Ikhwani and the votes of the Sururi, you'd get between 60 and 80% of the votes. And you'd have four the other candidates sharing the, the remaining 20%. So this shows you, you know, the mobilizing power of these groups. Um, Uh, and, and, and again, and, and no one was able to compete with them. A little bit in the countryside. In the countryside, the tribal factor mattered more than in the cities. So in the countryside, you would have tribal sheikhs elected. Because again, the, probably you know, the, the, the political relevance of the tribe is greater in the countryside than it is in the cities. So in the cities, the tribes were not able to compete. But they were able to compete in the countryside. So this is the, the bemol I would put to my uh, argument on, on the Sahwa being the only group capable of mobilizing people. So uh, today, uh, with the, with the uh, Arab Revolution spreading in the region, uh, the Sahwa is again uh, at the center of all attentions. Uh, like in, in other countries, uh, the, uh, Saudi Arabia has seen for the last few years the rise of a new generation of Sunni political activists who want democratic change and do not feel bound by traditional political alliances and, 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 and allegiances. Uh, these you know, young people, they are the equivalent of the Sixth of April movement in Egypt. You know, you have this same phenomenon in Saudi Arabia. These Facebook activists who are not linked to any particular party, right? In the Saudi case, uh, many of them have a, a background in the Sahwa. Because, again, the Sahwa is so hegemonic in Saudi Arabia that, you know, they are in the end the only vehicle for political socialization in the kingdom. Or there are, you know, there are very few other, you know, vehicles. So many of these young people have been through, you know, Sahwa circles and they have abandoned them because they refuse the dogmatism of the Sahwa, sometimes also because they refuse the ambiguities of the Sahwa and its relationship with the state, right? They weren't satisfied with, with this kind of, you know, uh, ambiguous relationship that the Sahwa maintains. Uh, so, so again, as I said, you know, they, they are the, the, the Saudi equivalent of the 6th of April movement, for those of you who study, who looked at what was going on in Egypt, the 6th of April movement is a movement who called for the uh, first demonstration in, in Cairo on the 25th of January. And, and what I believe is that those young Sunni political activists in Saudi Arabia uh, could become the trigger for change, as they were in other countries. But, uh, but if, if these young people are the 6th of April movement, uh, then I would say that, you know, in, in order to continue the comparison with Egypt, then the Sahwa occupies the same position as the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. That is, the Sahwa will not start the protest 
But the protest cannot succeed without its support. You know, that's, that's what was said about the revolution in Egypt. Right? The, the Brotherhood didn't start it. But eventually, the Brotherhood helped it to succeed. Right? So I believe that in Saudi Arabia, you know, you, the, the young political activists could start something. But eventually, they would have to, you know, uh, they, they would need they would need the sahwa. Again, there's a moment when when you when you when you when, when you are protesting against a, a you know a strong state, you need you know organized networks, you need committed activists, you need solid mobilizing structures. Facebook is not enough. So you know, in the end, and and in and in the Saudi context, the sahwa again is the only group capable of providing this. Um, and what is interesting is that this importance of the Sahel for mobilization seems to be known both to the young activists and to the regime. Uh, so uh, in February, I felt among the young activists the hope that there could be possible Sahel support for their efforts, for their efforts. And one of the signs that the Sahel would be ready to support a movement for change in Saudi Arabia was a petition that was issued uh, late February. Uh, and it was called uh, towards a state of rights and institutions. And uh, it demanded you know, uh, more democracy, although it was framed in a very conservative language. So you know, again, it's always the thing with the Sahwa, right? Language is, is fundamentally religious. But the demands in the end, are, you know, they ask for accountability, they ask for free elections, they ask for freedom of, freedom of speech. Although they would add, and, and this is what you know, would, would, would bring them critique from the uh, liberal sides, they would act responsible freedom of expression, right? Really knows what responsible means. But you know, at least you know, it's a kind of a pro-democracy language, but in a very conservative you know, kind of Islamic uh, uh, language. And what is interesting with this text, so this text was published late February uh, 2011. It was signed by uh, a number of relatively important Sahwa figures. Uh, Salman al-Awda signed the text, and that was very uh, uh, you know, new for him. Salman al-Awda had been completely absent from you know, any political activities since the mid-90s. So that was something new, and again, indicated that some of the Sahwa were probably ready to make a move. Uh, and and that later, the petition was put online, and thousands of people signed it. So then it became a phenomenon online. So, uh, uh, of course, you know, uh, should not overestimate it, right? You know, the, the, you know, many of the Sahwa's leaders didn't sign the petition, right? They, but Al-Awda is one of the few who really matter who signed it, and this is significant, I think. Although Nasr Omar didn't sign, for instance, he probably, at the moment in the Sahwa, is, has more weight than Al-Awda. But, you know, at least the fact that Al-Awda signed has to be taken into account. And, and that was something really unprecedented. And I believe that this, uh, you know, gave, a, you know, a, a, a sign to the regime, the, you know, it made the regime feel that, you know, it had to appease the Sahwa in some way. And so, uh, if you look at what the regime has been doing in, 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 in March, they actually did a lot to try to appease the Sahwa. Uh, a lot has been said, for instance, about the uh, $100 billion package that was announced by King Abdullah on the 18th of March. Uh, but, you know, when you look at how the package is split, you would see that actually a lot of money goes to religious institutions. And a lot of money goes to religious institutions that are known to be uh, Sahwa strongholds, especially the uh, circles for the memorization of the Quran. Right? They get a lot of money. The religious police, where the Sahwa also has uh, you know, good presence, gets a lot of money. So uh, again, if you look at how the money is split, I think that you know, this was also meant to be a, uh, a, a way to appease the Sahwa. Um, 
Uh, at the same time, you know, during the, if you look at the, what happened during the Riyadh Book Fair in, in March as well, uh, you know, there were a number of books that were banned. And, and it happened that all of these books were books you know, that had been criticized by Sahwa Sheikhs for their non-Islamic or un-Islamic content. So uh, you know, the state responded by banning the books that some in the Sahwa had asked to be banned. Uh, uh, you know, another thing that you can interpret as a concession to the Sahwa is this decision not to allow women to participate in the forthcoming uh, municipal elections, right? The municipal elections were announced uh, for September. They had been delayed for quite some time. Finally, the, 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 the government announced that there would be municipal elections in September. But it said it would only be for men, like, it, like the first time. And again, the Sahwa was very uncomfortable with the idea of having women participate. So this was probably also a concession to, uh, the, uh, to the Sahwa. And so it worked pretty well, right? When in, when in March, uh, there were calls for demonstrations in Saudi Arabia. There was this uh, day of the 11th of March uh, you know, that uh, some people called for a, a demonstration on Facebook. They called it uh, Thorat Hunayn, right? the, the, the revolution of Hunayn, Hunayn being a, a, an important battle in Islamic history. And, uh, and of course, the Sahwa didn't support this. Uh, none in, among the Sahwa sheikhs uh, came out in support of the calls. They even all condemned them. And actually, most of the Sahu Sheikhs came to say that even demonstrations as a means for change was wrong. So, you know, this was not a legitimate way of asking for change. So, uh, uh, this was understood by everyone as, you know, clear support for the regime. Um, we, we could talk later on in the questions about, you know, these calls for demonstration in, in the 11th of March. I'm not very convinced by them anyway. I, I, nobody really knows where they came from. And, and uh, some actually made the point that it could have well been, you know, could have well been a trap by Saudi intelligence. But you know, this we could discuss this later on. I mean, who created a Facebook page to see who would sign on it? So you know, I mean, we but we could discuss this at the end. But at least you know what is interesting is that you know there were similar calls at the time that emanated from you know well-known figures, and the Sahwa didn't back any of them. Um, so what we saw is that you know through this period of tension that has you know we've seen in Saudi Arabia since uh, since uh, uh, you know the revolution started elsewhere, the Sahwa has remained loyal to the state, and uh, I think that this has led the young political activists to change the strategy, and so uh, uh, they have decided to stop focusing on the issue of political change because they think that it's very difficult to uh, gain support on this, and now they have move to another issue on which now they concentrate, which is the issue of political prisoners. Uh, and, and it is said that in Saudi Arabia you could have as, as, much, as many sorry, as 5,000 political prisoners. Uh, this means that you include in this definition all the people who were rounded up because they were accused of, of uh, sympathy for jihadism after 2003. And they were never uh, given a trial. Right? So th these, are to, these, these go into this definition of political prisoners. Um, and what is, interested is that, uh, what is interesting is that on this issue, there seems to be a consensus. There seems to be common ground. Uh, the Sahwa has much, forcefully, much more forcefully uh, 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 acted on that issue. You, you had a petition late April. And this, one, it was, this time it was signed by major Sahwa sheikhs, asking for the release of political prisoners, all them being given a fair trial. Uh, so on this issue, there is you know, much more consensual Sahwa support than for political change, what was more marginal. Uh, the, uh, my sense is that the Sahwa is much more active on this issue as well, because many of these prisoners probably come from the Sahwa. That is, they are, uh, you know, young people from the Sahwa who are arrested, you know, after 2003 because they were accused of, you know, again be, having sympathy for jihadism. They were not necessarily real jihadis, but you know, again because they had sympathy, they were arrested. And so now the Sahwa sheikhs are trying to defend their, you know, their own people in this, in a way. 
But what is interesting is that you know, this issue of political prisoners has been seen increasingly by the young political activists as a common ground. And what you see now you know, on Facebook is, is a, a, you know, an increasing number of campaigns to free political prisoners. Uh, and, um, and what I find really interesting is that on these campaigns, people sign with their name, right? Uh, there's you know, there's been a few of them, and, and you know, on the course for the revolution of the 11th of March that never happened, no one would dare to sign with his name. But for the issue of political prisoners, actually, people sign with their name. So um, uh, now there's, you know, there's, 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 there's a prominent Facebook group uh, that has gained some momentum in the last few weeks, uh, which asked for the release of someone called Khaled al-Jihani. Uh, Khaled al-Jihani is the only person who came to demonstrate on the 11th of March. Uh, he <laughs> so Khaled Khaled Jihani came. He I mean there was a lot of security presence. I don't know how we managed to you know to uh, pass through the security presence, but he managed to get to the place that were that had been designated as the place for meeting for for, for the demonstration. And of course there you had you know uh, BBC and Al Jazeera and you know and all the media were you know. <laughs> and they actually had been brought there by the Saudi authorities to see that you know, nothing would happen. And so because Khaled managed to come, he started talking uh, you know, in front of the cameras. He first talked in English to the BBC and then he talked in Arabic to Al Jazeera. And you see the security guys accompanying the journalists, you know, they, they don't know what to do. They, speak, uh, they seem completely stressed out. And they, but in the end, they let him speak because they didn't know what to do. They probably didn't want to interrupt in front of the journalist because it would have given a terrible impression. So Khaled actually could, spoke 10 minutes in English and 10 minutes in Arabic. He explained that you know, this country needed change and, and real reform, and you know, there was corruption, this was unbearable. And, and he said, they're going to arrest me anyway, and I know it, but you know, it doesn't really matter because I, this is a big prison. So if I'm, they take me from the big prison to the small prison, they will not change anything for me. And, 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 and he, he got arrested. Uh, so what, the, 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 what you see, the last images, the last images of the BBC uh, uh, program, of the BBC program on him, or, you know, is, is uh, Khaled leaving the square with his car, and you see police cars following him, and the BBC <laughs> journalist saying, and in the evening I tried to call the number that he gave me, and it never responded. So now, uh, what is interesting, that because, the, so, the, the, so the video now has, you know, has become a hit in Saudi Arabia, but on YouTube and everywhere. And so Khaled has become a figure. Now so there's this Facebook group called Aina Khaled, where is Khaled? Which is, which is getting a lot of supporters. I mean, I have at least, uh, you know, like, I would say 25 of my Facebook friends who signed for this, you know, and with their names. Uh, and many more, right, at least, you know, the ones I know. And, uh, and, 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 and I have a feeling that they're trying to, to turn Khaled into a Saudi Khaled Saeed, you know, for, again, for those of you who know Egypt. Khaled Saeed was that young man who was uh, beaten to death by the, uh, by the Egyptian uh, police in, in 2010. And his death was one of the triggers for the revolution, and, you know, and, and the fact that he was, you know, mediatized. And so they're probably trying to transform Khaled Jihani into Saudi Khaled Saeed. Uh, you know, I, I, of course, you know, I don't know if this is going to work. Uh, I, you know, and again, coming back to the main issue, I don't know if this is the issue around which the Sahwa is going to rally, because again, you know, all of these campaigns, in the end, would need to gain sufficient support from the Sahwa. Uh, so, you know, my sense is that this is still undecided. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, if we look at the Sahwa's, uh, you know, uh, you know, records, 
Uh, I would consider it consider very unlikely that the Sahwa would be ready to put its weight you know, on an opposition campaign at the moment. So you know, there might be isolated voices in the Sahwa supporting these kind of things. I don't believe that the Sahwa, at the moment, would be ready to, you know, to put all of its weight in, in, in a campaign of protest. Uh, around Khalid or anyone else, right? So, you know, for the moment still, you know, they are, you know the, the Sahwa maintains the same ambiguities, but I, you know, I wouldn't say that it's at the moment uh, uh, ready to turn into a, a base for the opposition. But what is interesting is that if we look, if we look historically, you know, the Sahwa has, you know, always behaved as a strategic actor. They, they are a strategic actor. So if they believe that the conditions are ripe, if they believe that the context has changed, uh, one of the things that could change the context is what happens in the royal family. You know, in, in the change of generation in, 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 you know, some consider that you know, in 10, 15 years, you know, there's going to be trouble eventually. Because um, the, um, uh, for the moment, you know, power is transmitted from brother to brother among the first generation of princes who are the sons of King Abdelaziz. Uh, the youngest of them who has political responsibilities is Mokrin, he's 65. The king is 87, the crown prince is 84. There's a moment when this generation is going to expire, and you have to move on to the second generation. There's no plan for this. So what I expect to happen is, you know, you know as, as we get closer to that moment, there's going to be increasing tensions in the family. Because everyone knows that the system is not sustainable for the second generation. That is, eventually in the second generation, one branch is going to have to take over. Because you, know, you can have horizontal, horizontal transmi transmission among you know, brothers when they're 40. Still, it's difficult, but it, ha it can happen. But among a group made up of more than 500 people from different mothers, this wouldn't be, there would be no way this could work. So everyone knows <laughs> that one of the current princes is going to impose his lineage, he's going to impose his sons, and you know, and create a, a, some form of patrilineal monarchy. Which means that you know, as we get closer to that moment, there will be tensions, because each of the princes will try to be in the best position for when the critical moment happens. And this could lead to alliances between royal family members and groups in society. And this could be one of the moments when either those young political activists, either the Sahwa, either both at the same time, could take advantage of the situation, right? So again, I don't see the Sahwa you know, moving for the moment, but you know, there is trouble ahead. So you know, they might want to make a move when they think the conditions are ripe. Um, and I'll finish here. Thank you. Many thanks, Stefan. Let's turn to Stefan and give you either one. Yep, yep. Just, a, just a couple okay. of minutes. Um, do, do our voices carry? Does, does everyone hear? Great. Um, so uh, it's really a very, very impressive piece of work. And if you've uh, seen Stefan operating with the boxes and boxes of books of, of Arabic primary literature he sends home from his field research, and the huge wall of Arabic titles he's got in his office, and he actually just uh, he just did field research in, in Egypt, uh, very timely, on the Egyptian Salafis, and I we came to his office in Paris a few weeks ago, and there was another stack of huge boxes with Egyptian Salafi literature, so there's a lot more interesting stuff in the making. Uh, the, the point is that uh, it's, it's probably the, the best referenced work on Saudi Islamism or, or Islamism in the GCC in general, yet it's really, really very, very deep, both in terms of the, the primary written sources and the field research that he has done. Uh, probably the only person I know with more books than him is, is John Seidel. Um, uh, and uh, it's actually based on a French PhD of, of more than 800 pages. So this year is the, 
I mean, the book is the very, very condensed version. So if you, if you really want the full Monty, then you've got to go to the Sciences Po Library in Paris. Um, I think it was 250,000 words. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, th th this is already the, the executive summary of, of, of his uh, <laughs> six or seven years of research. And it's, it's really significant also beyond the study of uh, Saudi Islamism or Islamism in general. I think it, it uh, tells us a lot of lessons about um, state-society relations and the idiosyncrasies of state-society relations in oil-rich states in general, in, in authoritarian monarchies in general. And I think some of the things he says about how social actors at the same time uh, are part of the state apparatus or are dependent on state resources, are integrated in state institutions, something that's important to understand also in the, the context of, of very different types of actors that have nothing at all to do with Islamist politics. And uh, I've, I've just uh, when, when I reread those passages, I was uh, reminded of what, what a colleague of mine told me about uh, advice that he gave to people who were working in the Islamic Development Bank, which is kind of part of, I think, the widest sphere of institutions in Saudi Arabia that were colonized by, by the Ikhwan over the, the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he told me about how extremely autonomous in what they were in the ideology, in the kind of technocratic language they developed, in the, the, the concepts of Islamic economics they, they propagated internationally, how extremely autonomous they were in that from the Saudi regime that really didn't, didn't care very much about what they were doing. Uh, they were just given that kind of institutional fiefdom, that kind of field to experiment with. Uh, and I think, I think it's, a, it's a very paradoxical uh, aspect that we often see in different fields of the Saudi system, that although it's a very centralized and very authoritarian system, there's very, very large uh, autonomy within those spheres for people really to do what they want, be it the Muslim Brotherhood colonizing the, um, uh, the, the educational system or other parts of the system, or uh, other social actors uh, taking over wholesale, either in, in a coordinated fashion or in a diffuse fashion, uh, whole uh, sec sectors of the state, of the, of the parts of the security apparatus of uh, uh, certain regulatory institutions, certain distributional institutions. Um, and so that kind of permissiveness of authoritarian patronage, I think, is something very interesting that, that carries uh, far beyond the, f the field of uh, uh, Islamic politics. Um, I, should, I should mention in passing that there's actually a whole generation of uh, young scholars who've been working on Saudi Arabia uh, based out of Paris, uh, myself not included, uh, who've, who've just brought out their uh, first books, uh, or are just about to bring out their first books in English. Uh, there, there's also a book by uh, Nabil Moulin, uh, actually based on his second PhD, about the, the history of the official clergy in Saudi Arabia, which is a very interesting and very well historically and also sociologically grounded complement to, to Stefan's work. And then there's uh, the other complement that's, that's uh, really missing in the whole picture of Islamist politics. That's the book by Thomas Heckhammer about uh, the militant, the violent uh, Islamist groups in, in, in Saudi Arabia. So if you, if you take that kind of holy trinity of uh, French-Saudi uh, studies, then you've really got the, 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 whole, the whole array covered. So I, I also, if you're interested, uh, I, I urge you also to have a look at those two other titles. Um, now, the, the, the Sahwa, as in some ways part of the state, uh, reminded me of really almost any other social group or any other interest group, any other social identity, not only in Saudi Arabia, but in the whole GCC. I think if you talk about um, social ideological identities, interest groups, they're almost always articulated through state institutions, through state redistribution. You have, um, and uh, Stefan engages with that uh, in, in his book, you also have 
uh, more liberal ideological trends, which are as much or even more so the creation of, of the state through the support of uh, literary clubs that, that he describes in the 1970s that were set up in, in a relatively more liberal environment after King Faisal had, had been assassinated in 1975. Um, and uh, I think intellectuals, Islamists, also all kinds of groups that, that are, that are self-designated as civil society groups in reality are often part of an expanded state apparatus and of an expanded patronage machinery, not only in Saudi Arabia, but also in the other GCC countries, uh, which all are uh, rentier countries. And I think there's something particular about certainly high rent, relatively uh, sparsely populated countries that have enormous resources at their disposal and in which politics really happens within the state and uh, between different groups that are associated within the state uh, as clientels, rather than between state and society in a, in a, in a more conventional sense. Um, now, uh, the idea of double-edged networks, I think, is, is very useful in, in, in that context, again, more broadly. Uh, and uh, th there are examples of groups really being created from scratch or, or um, dissident organizations or supposed political actors that, that identify as opposition or as dissident actually being created almost from scratch through, uh, through state action. And th there are examples, for example, in Kuwait, where you have um, a new stratum of uh, kind of Shiite community leaders that come from very rich business families that, that were created from the 1980s on <laughs> by the Kuwaiti regime, by the ruling family, through patronage policies to replace an older generation of notables, of social intermediaries, of old merchant families that, have, that had kind of lost their purchase, that had lost their control over the Shiite population more broadly. So there are families like Haider or, or Bu Hamsin that got extremely rich through state patronage and that are now acting as, to some extent, spokesmen of Shiite politics, the Shiite community, and Shiite political movements, intermediary between uh, the, the regime and, for example, formerly radical groups like the Khat al-Imam movement that uh, are officially followers of, of uh, Khomeini's line uh, and now Khamenei's line in in Iran. So there's a, a very broad pattern of political actors being, being generated by the state and playing that kind of double-edged role where one day they might actually, if the, if the circumstances uh, are such that it makes strategic sense, at some point might actually turn against the state, but might then again, when the circumstances change again, as it did for the Sahwa in the 90s, might be co-opted again. And there's a whole, uh, there are several waves of uh, new social groups being created uh, opposition groups being, uh, to some extent, generated uh, by, by, by default or by design uh, through, through state action, and, and then those groups being successively co-opted by, uh, by, by the state apparatus. It happened with uh, regional separatists in the 1930s in Saudi Arabia. It happened with uh, Arab nationalist dissidents in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, and then it happened with the, the, the Sahwists in the 90s. And most recently, it's been happening with the peripheral actors in the jihadi field that again are being re-sucked into the system and who themselves uh, in, in terms of the discourse and the networks they were generated within emerged from you know, the, the wider sphere of the state. So there's something very peculiar about politics within the state and state society relations and all those systems. I think that Stefan's work in informs us about very usefully and, and uh, allows us to think about also in, in other contexts, uh, even outside of Saudi Arabia. Um, I've only got uh, three short questions uh, to uh, abuse discussion's privilege before we open up the floor. 
Uh, and one is, what, what is the Sahwa actually today? I mean, if politics is taken out, if, uh, if the, the, the uh, political doctrine of Hakimiya and uh, an Islamist movement being a political movement trying to take over state control to some extent, if that isn't there anymore, then isn't the Sahwa just a kind of private Wahhabiya? Isn't it, isn't it just uh, people following Wahhabi principles without that being directly... Uh, controlled and endorsed by the state, so I'm, I'm not quite sure what what they actually stand for. If you take out the Muslim Brotherhood, the political component, um, and then uh, uh, what you say in the, in the in your book about the, uh, the the very strict separation of different spheres of the intellectual liberal sphere of the Islamist sphere of the sphere of of power controlled by by the princes, which is not something that you engage with uh, in the talk, but which kind of underpins a lot of uh, <coughs> a lot of your analysis. Um, I, was, I was wondering whether you, you might care to comment about how those kind of fields reinforce, because you say, for example, that princes uh, never become intellectuals. They always stay princes. They, they either stay in the military sphere or the, or the political sphere. Uh, princes also never become religious players. Um, and it is that kind of separation of spheres and the role of the ruling family above those, those spheres in some sense that uh, uh, keeps society stable through, through a kind of divide and rule mechanism. But what, what are the mechanisms that prevent a prince from becoming an, an alim? What if, if a prince just shows up at uh, the draw of some member of the Hayat Kibar al-Nama and, say, and says, look, I, I want my ijazah and uh, I, wanna, I wanna become a member of, of your club one day. Um, and the, the, the third short question is, uh, Khalid Jihani, do we know anything about his background? Is he a sahwist or is he just, uh, I mean, uh, what do people see in him? I mean, do, do people know anything about his biography? Great. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for those uh, great comments. Uh, it's a um, great pleasure and an honor to mm. see those comments from Stefan. We, we met on we met when we were doing field work, I think, in yes. 2004 in Saudi Arabia. We so. met in the Natch compound. We met in the Natch compound. Yeah. So. so it's a long story, so I'm really, I'm really happy to be here next to you. And to, listen to those comments and um, um, I, so I will respond to your question. I think that I completely agree with all the points that you made and I, I, and I think in some way, I mean I, I heavily relied on your work for my work and I think we mm. complement each other in that um, you know, way of looking at state society relations and, and what you call segmentation and that I've somehow borrowed from you as well, so it's, it's also a dialogue. Um, uh, so what is the Sahwa today? Um, the, the, so when I'm saying that they came back to the status quo, I don't mean that they stopped uh, being uh, Muslim brothers, right? The, I mean, they still teach Qutb and they still study Qutb and they still, you know, uh, you know, subscribe to all that part of their ideology. The big question in the Sahwa is whether Saudi Arabia is an Islamic state or not. Mm. That is, does Qutbism apply to Saudi Arabia or does it just apply outside Saudi Arabia? The traditional view was that it applied everywhere except in Saudi Arabia. In the early 1990s, they said, no, finally, it also applies in Saudi Arabia, because look what they've said. Look what they've done in the Americans, and you know, and so, right, so, and then they revert to the previous position, right? So we, so, so this applies everywhere else, but not here. So Hakimiya, of course, is, is a key principle. What is interesting is that they call it Tawhid al-Hakimiya, because they, it's a way of blending it with Wahhabism as well. But, uh, but, but, but the term clearly comes from the Muslim Brotherhood literature. But, uh, but for them, it applies elsewhere and not in the kingdom. So this is the, their way of justifying you know, not uh, moving against the, the regime. Um, the, the second 
a point that you make. So, so that's that's that's. Uh, I didn't want to enter in, in, in too many of those details, not not to uh, get too too much into the, uh, uh, the 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 sociology of the state. And, and but um, I, I do make the point in the book that you know what the state is fragmented into what I call different fields. And what I find really interesting is that, I mean, this is quite unique to Saudi Arabia, all to rentier states. In Saudi Arabia, it also goes back to the religious history of the state. That is, when, when, you, know, when you have this alliance between uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the princes and the ulama, between Abdul Wahab and between Mohammed bin Saud, uh, this gives rise to a political system that is completely unique, which is based on a power-sharing agreement between the princes and the ulama. And, uh, and to, to justify this, they go back, even Abdul Wahab goes back to Ibn Taymiyyah and the concept of Siyash al So he uses this to justify this power sharing agreement. But it's interesting that, you know, in this power sharing agreement, I mean, and, and this goes back to the, to the modernity of Ibn Taymiyyah in a way. There is the recognition of the existence of, a, of an autonomous political sphere, bounded by the Sharia, and you know, you cannot do what you want. But when there is no clear Sharia text, you can practice politics. You can, as long as you're following the, the common good, that is the Maslaha. So, there, so, so the, the Saudi state, the, the power sharing agreement is based on this idea that there is a space for politics. When, you know, when you've reached the limit of religion, there is a space for politics, and politics has to be, you know, guided by the common goods. It's a very modern idea. It's Ibn Taymiyyah, 13th century, by the way. So it's, I mean, puts Ibn Taymiyyah also in, uh, I mean, we, Ibn Taymiyyah is a very interesting character. We could discuss about him for quite some time, so I'm not going to get into that. But, um, uh, so what I'm trying to say is that this, this, so this power sharing agreement gives rise to two different spheres, politics and religion in a way, and to two different elites, right? And, and from the beginning, you have the idea that there's a political elite and there's a religious elite, and they don't mix. They have different prerogatives. So the political elite are the princes. The religious elite at the beginning are just the descendants of Muhammad Abdul Wahab. And then it opens up to other families. But it's always remained within a tiny aristocracy from Najd, right? You know you can count those families. Until very recently, Wahhabi ulama always come from the same families. So you do have those two groups, those two distinct elites. And what is interesting is that, you know, it would be seen as a breach of the, argue, of the, of the, of the segmentation, of the power sharing or segmentation agreement, if at some point one prince decided to become a alim. And so in 250 years, you never have a Saudi prince, you never have a member of the Al Saud who calls himself a sheikh, who starts to dress as a sheikh and who said, I'm a sheikh. Because again, this would be seen as a violation of the rules. I find this fascinating because, in a way, you know, it's, I mean, to some extent, I mean, that's another point that's it's prerogative. It's very secularized, in a way. It's probably one of the most secularized states. The state is extremely secularized, and the society is the least secularized of all. And the deal is, is in order to have the, most secu the, the, the least secular society, you have the most secularized state. I mean, so, so then, you know, th this, this division in spheres continued to. Uh, to maintain itself in, 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 through the history of the Saudi Kingdom. Then came oil, and oil gave the royal family the possibility of creating groups ex nihilo. So when, so, so, you know, at the beginning, post Saudi Arabia has what, what, you know, this Islamic legitimacy that is the core of the, the, the Saudi legitimacy. But in the 70s, um, late 60s and 70s, uh, King uh, Faisal, at the, at the end of his life, and then King Khaled and, and, and Crown Prince Fahad at the time, decide that you know, Saudi Arabia also needs to be modern. They also need what they call, a, you know, what I call a, a modern legitimacy. And to, to, to have this modern legitimacy, they need to have a group of people who are the equivalents of the ulama for modernity, 
who will speak for the modernity of the Saudi kingdom, right? So the same way as, you know, you have, uh, you know, people who, uh, 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 you know, speak in the name of the Islamic orthodoxy of the Saudi kingdom, the Ardulama, you have to have people who speak in the name of the modernity of the Saudi kingdom. Those are the intellectuals. And the intellectual group is really created ex nihilo in the 70s. I mean, I, again, I, I make that point in the book. They create the institutions are funded with all the money and created. And you, and, and you know, you really have this, this process of creating a field of people who speak a completely different language from the ulama. It's a modern language. They praise the development and the modernity and the great achievements of the Saudi kingdom, right? It's a completely different language, but it's also a form of justification for the Saudi state, right? Uh, another point I make in the book, and I'm not going to go into that, but of course, when the Sahwa starts to become powerful, this creates tensions, because the Sahwa are not ready to accept this discourse, which is basically a secular discourse. But what it shows is that you know, the, 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 the Saudi system is able to accommodate different discourses that can be contradictory with each other. Um, so, um, so coming back to your point, I think, did, I, did, I, did I respond? Yeah. Or, yeah. Could, continue, could go on for, yeah. Um, Last question, and I'll just, I have no, um, uh, no one knows where Khalil al-Jihani came from, which <laughs> makes him, which makes him, you know, a, a, a figure in, you know, in which everyone can recognize himself, which is the strength of the Khalil al-Jihani, precisely because he has no background, he has everyone's background. It's an empty signal. Yes, exactly. So, it's, you know, to, to, if you want to unite around a figure, it's much more, I mean, useful to have a figure to which, you know, you cannot associate him to anything. He, uh, the only thing that we know, uh, because it, 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 this came out in an interview with his brother, is that he has a child, a five-year-old child, who's, who suffers from autism. And who's, he's very angry at the Saudi state because he says that his child has not been well taken care of. So that, you know, that could be the, the, the root of his anger against the Saudi state. But that's, you know, that's, that's as far as we know. He does, at the same time, when you listen to his discourse, he's pretty articulate. So he's, you know, he's not someone who's just... So, He's a mystery. Again, and, and in order to create symbols, you need to create symbols out of mysteries. I mean, if, you, if you knew where he came from, then you wouldn't identify. So it's probably better that way for, for the activists. Great. Well, many thanks for the back and forth between you guys. But I think it's time to open it up to the floor. And instead of taking individual questions and getting individual responses, why don't we get a, a range of questions and then, then we can finally get back to uh, Stefan uh, in response. So uh, let's, let's have some questions from the floor. Yes, in the back. Yes, um, for the religious dissenters in Saudi Arabia, what sort of country do they want? I mean, do they consider the country to be soft on Islam? Or are they looking for um, reforming Islam? What, what, what are they looking for? Mm -hmm. okay. um, I know that in Egypt, uh, a lot of people have been talking about generational rifts within the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. So I have a similar question about the Sahwa movement. Are there generational rifts, and if so, how do they manifest themselves? Mm -hmm. In the back. Uh, you have discussed uh, the, uh, the relationship between the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and the uh, religious uh, in Saudi Arabia and the Sahwa. But you haven't uh, really mentioned uh, the influence of the Iranian revolution upon the people on Sahwa. Like, uh, for example, um, since the 
revolutions. After the interference of, uh, of the Iranian regime in Bahrain and in Kuwait, we saw more support of the Hayat and Al-Aqbar Muslimin in Southern Iran. So I want your feedback on that. Please forgive me for what may be a somewhat uneducated question. Uh, there was the time a good while ago when uh, Mecca was partly taken over by another group and it just occurred to me if people uh, were less well acquainted with history, you can just fit that in. Has any of the Zahwis reached out to the Shia via the uh, Muslim Brotherhood? You said they were prepared to work jointly with, with the uh, Shia in case they have a common goal, for instance demand a constitutional monarchy of this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, in the role of thinking about Islam and international relations and the Wahhabism theory um, or movement, what would you say is the Sahu's role in that um, sense, please? Okay, I think maybe I should have six. I could, you, want, you want to have more? I really have a lot on my plate, but... Just yeah, yeah, <laughs> one more. There's one factual question. What is their place in the armed forces? Yes. Okay. And just behind you, and then, and then we'll give you a second. <laughs> um, yeah, what about women? Is this whole, the whole Sahwa thing, is this a, a thing of young, frustrated man who can't find jobs? Um, Very good. Okay. Okay. Excellent questions. Uh, that's going to take forever to respond. <laughs> um, Thank you very much. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, what is the project of the Sahwa? Right? What, what do they want? Uh, if, we, if we look at, again, uh, one occasion when we, the Sahwa voice demands, voice demands was in the early 90s, right? when you had this, this insurrection of the Sahwa. Uh, at the time, what they asked was, could be described uh, what they asked for could be described as a mix of more theocracy and more democracy mixed together, which could seem contradictory, right? So on the one hand, the project is about, you know, more religious control on everything, right? Again, they want to, they want to uh, abolish this autonomous political sphere that the princes claim. They want foreign policy to be entirely Islamic. They don't want it to be driven by, you know, state interest. They don't, they don't, they don't consider this a valid point, right? So, or, uh, so, they, so for them, you know, there has to be religious control over everything. At the same time, even in the early 90s, when you look at the project, they do ask for a, an elected assembly. You know, that was one of the demands. Uh, so, you know, and for more political participation, again, fighting against corruption is one of the things that they say. Uh, I, I would say that um, that you know um, um, today they're really split. Um, some would be just you know happy with with the uh, with the uh, kind of more religious control model. They want you know this Saudi state to be more of an Islamic state as they see it, which is again a state you know subjected to Sharia for everything, and again removing this kind of you know. Uh, 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 prerogative, prerogative that, the, that the royal family has, and, and you know, and get, giving them to to people who work only within religion. Um, you have some groups within the Sahwa who are certainly who have kept the pro-democratic side. Uh, again, if you know, doesn't go generally 
further than you know, uh, you know, within Islamic constraints, you know, the wabit al-shariya, you know, this, this, you know, religious constraints, right? You know, so there, there can be freedom of expression, but it has to be responsible in religious terms. There can be, you know, certain things, but it always has to be framed in Islamic terms. Um, you still have one part of the Sahwa which is very influenced by those kind of by this democratic discourse. Uh, those who've decided to completely embrace this are the ones who became the proponents of constitutional monarchy. And in, the, in a way, they left the Sahwa. They're not part of the networks anymore. Those groups, who, who, those, those people who decided to become, you know, the, 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 this, they call themselves the advocates of uh, reform and constitutional monarchy. Those are out of the Sahwa. And those are the ones who completely embrace the democratic discourse. So within the Sahwa, you still have differences, but you know, no one goes as far as, as the constitutionalists go. Um, the, so there's indeed a generational rift in the Sahwa. Uh, there's, um, I mean, especially among the, the, the younger generation of, uh, of people, and, and, um, and one of the signs you know, to see for myself is that some of the people who helped me in Saudi Arabia do my research with those young people from the Sahwa, who said, you know, and one of the things they were extremely angry about is all this secrecy, you know. It's done with the secrecy. And one of the demands that, that I've always found really interesting for some of these uh, young people was that uh, in order to embarrass the regime, we need to announce that the Surul and the Ikhwan exist. Because this, you know, the, 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 there's kind of a deal with the regime that these groups exist, but you don't talk about them. So what they were saying is that let's talk about them. Because this is, this is you know, in the end, you know, why should we ask for the establishment of real political life in Saudi Arabia? There's already, there's already one underground. They just, you know, take it to the ground. So uh, in, in 2005, there, there was a very interesting experiment uh, uh, of young members from the, the Ikhwan in Saudi Arabia who created a website which is called Al Ahrar. And it was, a, a, you know, a kind of a dissident group within the Ikhwan. Of, you know, all of them were 25 or 30. And they were talking about these, you know, uh, uh, you know, activist affairs and, you know, and talking about Ikhwan and the Surudin in very clear terms. And for them, this was a way of, you know, of embarrassing their own leaders. So it was also a way of rebelling against their own hierarchy and, of course, embarrassing the states. Uh, the website was shut down after a year and a half. Uh, and what I hear is that it was not shut down by the Saudi authorities. It was shut down because the, the, one of the sheikhs of the Ikhwan pressured the, the company who, had the, uh, <laughs> who was hosting the, the website and they, and they had to shut it down. So. Um, but, but you do have this rift. Um, when it, so the Iranian Revolution, uh, the, this, this actually you know, helped boost the Sahwa in Saudi Arabia. Uh, or, uh, and, and the regime ma made great use of the Sahwa in the 80s. Uh, in, and, and this was very similar to what had happened 20 years before. In the 60s, the enemy was Nasser, and it was Arab nationalism, it was communism. This was one of the reasons why the Muslim Brotherhood were brought to Saudi Arabia, because they were the ones who knew how to argue with uh, communists and Arab nationalists. So they needed them to speak on, you know, Salt uh, Mecca and respond to Salt Al-Arab and, you know, you had all these, you know, Radio Mecca and Salt Al-Islam and all these, these radios that were, you know, responding to Nasser's criticism of Saudi Arabia. In the 80s, the enemy is now Iran. So what you need is to have people who can speak a religious discourse that is articulate and that is able to you know, uh, again, respond to Iranian claims in a religious, articulate way. Those are the Sahwa. And, and, and sectarian, because the Sahwa in the end, we come back to this, still maintains some of the sectarianism of the Wahhabis, right? Some of them are less sectarian than, than the traditional Wahhabi sheikhs. That's probably the, the brotherhood influence. But still, in the 80s, you know, the most sectarians of the, the Sahwis, you know, were really brought to the fore to, you know, criticize Iran and to, to attack... Uh, 
No, it's, it's, it's actually in reaction, depending. I mean, what happened in the 80s is that they were given, you know, the state gave them even more resources and gave them even more prominence because the state needed them even more. So, you know, in the media, you know, Sahwa would be everywhere. The books would be sold because, you know, th there was this famous book at the time which became a, a hit, a bestseller in the 80s, which was written by Muhammad Suroza and Abedin, right, the founder of the, the, the Sururi group. Uh, the, the, the book is called Wajah Dawr al-Majus, The Time of the Zoroastrian Has Come. And he explains <coughs> that, you know, the Iranian Revolution is a big Shi'i master plan to take over the region, and, you know, and so, so it's, it's basically anti-Shi'i literature, but, you know, adapted to post-Iranian Revolution times. Mm -hmm. So the, the Wahhabi, traditional Wahhabi Shi'is wouldn't be able to do that. They would, they would quote even Taimiyya. They wouldn't be able to, you know, to argue with Khomeini in modern terms. The Sahwis knew how to do this, to blend sectarianism with kind of a modern discourse. So this, this is why they were, they were necessary at the time in this Islamic Cold War that was taking place between Saudi Arabia and Iran. But, but the roots of the movement go back to the 60s and 70s, right? It wasn't created actually. Oh, no, it was not created. Yeah. No, no, it, it, it existed long before the Iranian Revolution. But what I, they gained even more from, from this because the, the, the state needed them to respond to Iranian criticism. Um, so 1979 is something I didn't mention because I, I, I didn't want to complicate this too much. Uh, this has nothing to do with the Sahwa. Uh, 1979, so the people who uh, took the, uh, who stormed the Grand Mosque of Mecca in 1979, there were a few hundreds of them, led by Juhayman and Artebi, and who remained in, 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 the, in, the, in the Grand Mosque for two weeks. Uh, they were, I mean, uh, we, again, to take off time to, 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 to describe them in, in precise terms, but you, you could say that they were a radical Wahhabi group. They were, they were, you know, they were more Wahhabi than the Wahhabis. Mm. And they were actually anti-Sahwa. And they were actually, I mean, they, 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 at the beginning, they were mainly anti-Sahu. And, 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 and what it becomes, I mean, interesting is that they were actually, they actually emerged as a reaction to the politicization of Saudi Islam by the Sahwa. Right? They came from a movement that was a reaction to the politicization of Saudi Islam by the Sahwa. So actually, at the beginning, they were militant apoliticals who opposed Sahwa control of the Saudi states and eventually were repressed by the state, not because they were doing, I mean, not because they were threatening the state, because they were seen as, you know, a, a competitor by other groups, and especially the Sahwa, who convinced the state to repress them. When they got repressed by the state, they became angry against the state. <laughs> and so, actually, they were not in a position at all at the beginning. They became angry against the state. And so, because they were not political and because they were not, they didn't have articulate political demands, came the history of the Mahdi, of the Messiah. And so when they stormed the Grand Mosque in 1979, they never said this is a revolution against the Saudi states. They said, we, one among us is the Messiah, is the Mahdi. And so we have to go to the Grand Mosque to consecrate him as the Mahdi, because this is the end of the world. So, you know, in the, in the end, messianism was for them a way out of the fundamental contradiction of an apolitical group who was angry against the state, <laughs> but who didn't have the intellectual means to think that he was angry against the state. So messianism was the, was the way out in a way. It's easy to get that my point. So, but, so again, this, this were completely separate from the Sahwa. And this actually also served to boost the Sahwa in Saudi Arabia. Because the state, after 1979, became very wary of these you know, uncontrollable, informal groups that are not part of any state structure. These guys were not co-opted by the state. They, you know, they were in you know, a really kind of grassroots group. So what the Sahwa did is, what the, the state did is give him more power to the Sahwa. Mm -hmm. Because they said, you know, better have these guys controlling everything. Mm -hmm. Because we know them. 
than having you know, these uh, informal, uncontrollable groups pop up. So actually, 1979 was also something that heavily benefited the Sahwa. Although, although even though benefited for a while from the patronage of, of a leading figure in the religious establishment. So again, there, there is some link to, to the state and, and state support. And for the, the, the 1979 guys? Yeah, yeah. yeah because they were ultra Wahhabi. So actually, when, when they went to Sheikh Ibn Baz, they said, well, yeah, what you say is right. I mean, we agree. We're on the same line. So, which is interesting. Ibn Baz actually wrote a fatwa supporting them at some point. I agree with that. They didn't want to get into these details. They were a group that, that, that wanted to keep it, the, I mean, they, they didn't want to criticize the state, but at the same time, they wanted to stay away from it. The, the, their point was a very, as you said, uh, not, not, not at all a political point. They said the bayah is invalid because the, the, the royal family is not from Quraysh. And, you know, so they don't come from the, the tribe of the prophets. And so, in, in, you know, in, in, in old works on the caliphate, the caliphate has to come from the old legitimate Islamic ruler has to come from the tribe of the prophet. So it was a very basic Islamic reasoning. But then they refused to use takfir, for instance, which is very, they never uh, excommunicated anyone in the state. So they stayed away from the state as an institution, but they refused to attack by name any of the, the rulers. So again, messianism was the only way out, I would say. This, this is the point I was trying to make. But I agree, the, it, go back to the roots, the, the group was more, more complicated than. Um, I, 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 with a colleague, had written a, a big piece about those guys, if anyone's interested, uh, in Ijvas in 2007 in the International Journal of Middle East Studies. So a uh, colleague is Thomas Henkhammer, who was mentioned before, who did this book on jihad in Saudi Arabia. So we, wrote a, uh, we had a chance to meet some of the people who had been part of the group in Saudi. So we got first-hand accounts of, you know. It's interesting, I mean, the government today, you know, with the, uh, Abu Muhammad not say Jordan, mm -hmm. because he, even though he doesn't fully support what Jihaman was about, but the fact is, oh, you know, he's more, that's the whole thing that, in know, that somebody doesn't want to go there. But the fact that he mixed and rubbed shoulders with some of these people, he, if you, Yeah, we need to move on. We're, we're, we can continue the discussion. I'd be, I'd be happy to continue. Um, okay. Uh, yes. So um, the, the, the position of the Sahwa and the Shia is, you know, uh, uh, again divided. If you, you know, if you take the Sahwa, uh, you would have Sahwa is Wahhabism plus Muslim Brotherhood. Some in the Sahwa, I would describe it as 70% Wahhabi, 30% Muslim Brother. And others I would describe them as 70% Muslim Brother and 30% Wahhabi, right? The ones that are 70% Muslim Brother and 30% Wahhabi are probably less sectarian because they're more influenced by, 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 you know, by, by the Brotherhood approach to, to, to Shiism, for instance. Uh, and, uh, and, and I mentioned those two networks within the Sahwa before the Ikhwan and the Sururiyun, right? The Sururiyun are generally 70% Wahhabi and 30% Brothers. The, the ones that I call Ikhwan are more, I mean, 70% brothers, 30% Wahhabi. So the people who are associated with the Ikhwan group within the Sahwa are generally more uh, sympathetic to the Shia. 
So, for instance, Awad al-Ghani, who I mentioned before, was one of the big names in the, in the Ikhwan in Saudi. Uh, he went to the Eastern province to meet some Shia, and this made a big thing. Uh, Salman al-Auda has moved on that side a bit. He also you know, met with some Shia and said, you know, we can work together as long as we... So all of this is an effect of the, you know, of the uh, uh, you know, Muslim Brotherhood influence. Uh, traditional Wahhabi Shaykh would never think of doing anything such. To, to, you know, they, so, um, but you also do have within the Sahwa, especially within the Sururi sites, uh, extremely sectarian uh, sheikhs. Uh, Nasr al-Omar is very sectarian, for instance. He's much more harsh on, on everything that is not you know, pure Wahhabi or even I mean, or pure Sunni, at least. Um, but, but, but in a sense, right, this also is one of the things that makes them different from the Wahhabis. They, they're more, you know, some of them, at least, you know, because of this influence, are less sectarian. Um, I, I wrote this very, there were so many questions. I don't know what the, I, I, I skipped that one. Uh, the, the one on women. Uh, yes, uh, the, uh, they do have women's sections. Uh, yeah, they do have women's sections. Uh, what I had understood uh, from my interviews is that the Ikhwan have also a women branch. The Sururis are, you know, less interested in, you know, in involving women. But in the end, the general ideology of the Sahwa touches everyone because you know it's also taught in 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 in, in the women branches of universities. Uh, you have in Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, 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 important women Sahwa figures. Uh, Nura Saad, for instance, if someone Nura Saad is one of the big uh, women Sahwa figures, and and there are more than her, you know, Ruqayya Muharib, and you know, and they have their websites, and they have also you know, certainly, and they have their following. So this is not just a man-only phenomenon. Uh, there certainly are more men involved in the kind of activist sites, but but you know again it, it touches everyone and not just the men. Uh, in the armed forces, um, it's very difficult to know. Uh, I believe there is because again these people come from the same uh, you know socialization as you know uh, the, the strength of the Sahwa is that because it goes through such a mainstream institution as the education system, it can touch everyone. So you can basically have in any sphere someone with a Sahwa background or Sahwa ideas. Uh, there have been some cases of you know people uh, uh, you know uh, uh, getting involved with, with the with the position in the 90s who were who had a, 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 an armed forces background. I have a few cases. I wouldn't be able to say how you know how how much the the, the influence is to measure it. It's difficult. So they can't mobilize within the armed forces for a coup, for example. I, it's very difficult to know. It's, I, it's, really, it, it's really, to me, to me, it's a black box. I haven't approached the armed forces. So. Every, everyone's a prince there, so it's, it's but, difficult. But the, all the officers are princes, right? So it would always be in princely hands. <laughs> On that interesting note, I think <laughs> to close. Um, many thanks to Stefan for coming and joining and joining us and giving us a taste of his fine book, which is available for you to view and purchase here, and also to Stefan for his contribution and discussion his books here as well. So many thanks. Please join me in thanking them both in the appropriate manner. Um, thanks for your time.